Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our upcoming bonus episodes include an interview with Tasha about her Sundance experience and our picks for the best directors of the decade. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tosh Robinson. And joining us via Skype are... Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. On our next two episodes, we'll be discussing two films about irrepressible desires and deeply repressive times, each set on islands of great mystery, verdancy, and romantic possibility. A kind of fantasy island, if you will. Oh, wait, Scott. You're going to confuse everybody. We've got a big screen version of Fantasy Island coming out this week. These movies are nothing like that one. Nobody is going to know what you're talking about here. So these movies haven't turned the long-running ABC fantasy series from the 70s and 80s into a gritty Bloomhouse horror movie where every wish is like a cursed monkey paw? No. These are highly regarded Cannes Award winners from Jane Campion and Celine Siama, two world-class filmmakers. Is there a plane in them at least? No. They take place in the 18th and 19th century. Everybody arrives by boat. Are they gritty at least? I guess, if that makes you feel better. Fine. Please tell our listeners about them. 1993 was a watershed year for movies. The year Steven Spielberg directed Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. The year everyone kept the secret of the crying game. The year of Naked, Groundhog Day, The Remains of the Day, The Age of Innocence, Fearless, and The Fugitive. And yet from the moment it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in May, Jane Campion's The Piano stayed in the conversation, winning the Palme d'Or, multiple Oscars, and having a long run at art houses. Audiences were entranced and perplexed by the story of Ada McGrath, a mute Scotswoman in the mid-19th century who's sold into marriage in New Zealand, but gets wrapped up in a torrid affair with her husband's Maori-friendly acquaintance. Ada's quest to leverage freedom and passion from a compromising situation has plenty of parallels to another canned sensation from last year, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Set mostly on an isolated island in the late 18th century, the film is about the forbidden love that develops between a painter named Marianne and the woman she's commissioned to make a portrait of, Eloise, a young woman who's arranged to be married to a Milanese nobleman. As the two women get closer to each other, they spark a romance with a very limited time span and an upcoming expiration date. So this week, we'll talk about the piano and revisit all the excitement and controversy that swirled around it over 25 years ago. Then next week, we'll bring in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which has the same potential to raise a few eyebrows and turn up the art house temperature. So rather than buy a ticket to Fantasy Island, we'll take you on a trip to two Fantasy Islands, and all it will cost you is a little bandwidth. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. She came to a strange land in search of a new life. We can't leave the piano. But there are too few of us here to carry it now. She came to a husband she had never met. And with time, I'm sure she would become affectionate. discovered a passion that would change her world forever. Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill, The Piano. My favorite moment in The Piano comes about 70 minutes into the film, shortly after Ada McGrath, a mute Scotswoman played by Holly Hunter, has finally gotten back her beloved piano. Her husband, Alistair, played by Sam Neill, has been perplexed by Ada's unhappiness since she was sold into marriage and brought to a mucky backwater off the coast of New Zealand. And now that her one instrument of self-expression is in their home, he's perplexed once more to see Ada drifting out the front door away from him and away from her daughter Flora, played by Anna Paquin. Of course, we know where her attention is drifting. It's to Baines, played by Harvey Keitel, who rescued the piano after Alistair abandoned it on the beach and gave it back to Ada through an escalating series of sexual favors. So let's get back to that moment. Inside the house, Alistair demands that Flora plays some sort of jig, and she obliges as best she can. But director Jane Campion's attention is drifting too, to Ada outside the window, and suddenly the tune Flora is playing segues neatly into Lost and Found, a particularly lovely piece of music from Michael Nyman's score. Since Ada is mute, that score is absolutely critical for getting into her headspace, and it's filled with longing as she continues walking away from the house. The camera then slowly tracks in from behind her and settles on the bun in the back of her hair, which remains tight and impeccably braided and ladylike despite the wildness of the environment. Then Campion dissolves to the forest, which is dark and mysterious, yet beckoning her despite her best interests. She will continue to see Baines, and she will pay a terrible price for it. But in the end, she cannot suppress her own impulses, and neither can Alistair or anyone else. So much of what is great about the piano, and about Campion as a filmmaker in general, is intuitive and impulsive in the same way. Campion isn't going to have the strictures of narrative convention prevent her from expressing herself as she pleases. There's always something more than just the story to take in in her movies. That occurred to me again recently when I revisited In the Cut, her one and only attempt to make a film within the Hollywood system, which earned her mostly negative reviews and an F cinema score from audiences. At the time, I was one of those perplexed and disappointed by In the Cut, which struck me as a high-toned version of the same dumb, sexy thriller we've been seeing since Basic Instinct a decade before. But around the edges of that plot, Camping is trying to show what it's like to be a woman of sexual interest in a world full of violent and unpredictable men. In the Cut is a horror film. It's also a lusty film about how desire isn't always rational or right. 
It's just felt. There's a lot to talk about in the piano in 2020, just as there was in 1993, when it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and would later win Oscars for Campion Screenplay and for the performances by Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin. It also made Harvey Keitel a sex symbol for a few months, which is a triumph in itself. But in a film so full of music, I think it's helpful to listen between the notes, too. Set in the mid-19th century wilds of New Zealand, the film is about Ada's relationship with two men. Alistair, the man who is determined to make a proper wife out of her, first through patience, then through oppression and brutality, and Baines, a retired sailor who lives modestly among the Maori. After retrieving Ada's piano from the beach, ostensibly to get lessons from her, Baines negotiates a kind of sexual blackmail with Ada. He wants to, quote, do things he likes, unquote, while she plays in exchange for a piano key. When she's earned enough keys, the piano is hers again. On paper, this arrangement certainly does not put Baines in a good light. But the way it actually plays out in the piano is another story. And that's where Campion, the director, comes in, and Hunter is an actress, too. She wants the film to make emotional and psychological sense more than rational sense. Ada is in a position of extreme powerlessness because of the period, and because of her fatherless child and her arranged marriage to Alistair and her literal lack of a voice. But she has a hold on Baines and he on her, and the wrongness of the arrangement plays like rightness in Campion's telling. And that's all in the music, the symbolism, the camera work, and actions where words are not necessary. You feel your way through the piano, and it all feels right. There's a way you can have your piano back. Do you want it back? You want it back? You see, I'd like us to make a deal. There's things I'd like to do while you play. If you let me, you can earn it back. What do you think? One visit for every key. Okay, so 1993 was a huge year for me as a moviegoer. I remember seeing the piano multiple times and talking about it with friends in college, but I want to hear from you first. What was your experience with it, and how does it hold up for now, Tasha Robinson? Well, I mean, I read it very differently from the way that I read it back then. Uh, I think (laughs) I'm a much more sophisticated moviegoer than I was in 1993. Uh, In 1993, I was also in college, and... I went home for Christmas. Uh, I had heard so much about the piano. I was so excited to see it. And I talked my family into coming and seeing it with me Uh at the multiplex. Uh, It might have been on Christmas Day. Maybe Uh it was just on uh, Christmas Eve. But yeah, there I am sitting with my my fundamentalist Christian mother, whose idea of a good time at the movies more or less ends with MGM musicals. And we're watching this tale of like fraught sexual experimentation and grotesque violence and eventual mutilation. (laughs) And this happened to be the year after I went home, all excited to watch this uh, animated movie I'd heard so much about called The Grave of the Fireflies. (laughs) And I brought that home on video to watch at Christmas. So... Pretty much the only thing mom had to say about the piano as we left with me just mortified was Tasha isn't allowed to pick the Christmas movies anymore. (laughs) And then I went back to college and it was still in theaters in January. But I like I read a, a box office report. It had not yet made two million dollars at the box office at that point in 
uh, several weeks of release. And I, I wrote just the most college essay imaginable about, uh, you know, how people needed to learn to appreciate good movies. I was so incensed on Jane Campion's part. <laughs> uh, my budding little feminist heart was just so angry that people weren't finding this movie. But I, I mean, it was not like anything I had seen before in a multiplex at that time. And it really captured my attention. But at the same time, I was just, I was so caught up in the currents of it, like the the conflict between sexual exploitation and sexual discovery, the, the conflict between uh, a woman like losing her voice and, and learning to gain her voice, uh, the conflict between a woman being forced into several different kinds of sexual servitude and kind of bargaining and bartering and, and learning her way out of it. I didn't exactly know what to make of it. I, I kind of wish I'd had people to discuss it with in the same way you did, Scott. And it all feels very different today. It feels just the, as you say, the, the logic of it, feeling your way through the logic of it and exactly what Ada is going through and how she gets from A to B to C to D uh, makes a lot more sense to me as an adult than it did when I was that young. But it still is like beautiful and, and mysterious and emotional and heartfelt as it was back then. The visuals still capture me in the same way. And just kind of the daringness of it uh, as like an art house cinema piece uh, that brought people in. Come for the naked Harvey Keitel uh, <laughs> yeah. and, the, time. and the saucy sexuality and uh, stay for a budding proto-feminist movement in cinema. Wow, that was that was that was amazing. I I, I had uh, the, the my worst fa- family Christmas movie was uh, Ready to Wear the uh, Altman film. I, that was a Christmas Day movie. Um, was, uh, was, so, was the piano shorter than that? That's like three hours long, right? Ready to Wear. Yeah, that's not that bad. It's it, I think I don't think it's that much longer than the piano. Um, what it's about also you? dreadful. I mean, it's 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 well, just as full of I nudity, enjoy, but uh, it. I'm sure it felt like three times as long to Tasha while she was sitting next to her mom experiencing. <laughs> yeah, it. really you had you had the tougher experience. My family's maybe slightly more open minded than that. Um, Genevieve, let's go to you. Well, I was 10 years old in 1993, <laughs> so I did not see this in the multiplex with, with my family or otherwise. You didn't have an um, older sister to drag you to it, claiming it would be a great <laughs> Christmas movie? No, no. This To go back to what you were saying about the uh, 1993 being such a big film year, Scott, the, the, this was the year of uh, Jurassic Park for me. That was the, mm. the movie of the year for 10-year-old Genevieve. But I definitely was cognizant of sort of the discussion of the film. I certainly remember Anna Paquin winning uh, at the Academy Awards that year. That was, you know, sort of a big moment. And, and I was like, in tune enough to, you know, entertainment and movies to be aware of it. And kind of what I took from that time in the conversation around it, which admittedly was like very surface level and what a 10 year old could grasp was that it was a, a romance, you know, it was a historical romance. So I, for a long time, like that's just how it existed in my head, having not seen it and not being part of the discussions around it at, at the time. So I attempted to watch it uh, several years later in either college or, or grad school. My very late teens or early 20s, I um, remember trying to watch it. I may have gotten through it, but I also may not have because, like I said, I was going into it with this sort of context in my head of it being a romance. And when I hit the part where Baines makes his proposition and, you know, kind of as we've already talked about a, a fair bit, like that's sort of a sticking point uh, if you have to sort of recontextualize what the film is doing in that moment. And it, it's not a romance, you, you know, it's a story kind of about women's agency wrapped in a love story, but a very kind of troubling one. So I, I think I kind of wasn't able to make that 
you know, cognitive leap at that point. I had this sort of block of what I expected the film to be, keeping me from really engaging with the film that way. Um, so this was, I feel like, my first proper viewing <laughs> of the piano and sort of wrestling with it. And it's a fascinating film. And it, I'm still kind of, like I said, wrestling with my own feelings about it and its story. It's definitely it captured my attention, captured my imagination while I'm still working through my feelings about what it's saying. But I can't argue with how it says it. <laughs> I am still a little troubled with the, the denouement and how Ada ends up with Baines and how he is sort of portrayed at, in that ending moment. So maybe that's something we can kind of talk over at some point. But that was my experience. Yeah, I saw this film, I believe, three or four times in three different countries. Uh, I was studying abroad what? and like we were in England and we were doing a weekend in Dublin and just kind of took a flyer on this film and, and loved it. And then, you know, saw it at the art house back in England. I saw it when I got back. I think it's still playing in some ways when I got somewhere when I got back in the States. But uh, it's really a film I re revisited a lot. And I, and I liked it a lot this time. I feel like I really had not taken into account the thorniness of the sexual politics at that age as, as I do now, where it's kind of like – because Baines ultimately comes out as, as a figure of, of passion and, and desire for her. Yeah. You know, I didn't – you know, I wasn't even thinking then about how much I was looking past – the um, awfulness of the, of the of his of his request of his arrangement, the fact that she gives into it, and I think Scott Schino is right in the sense that you do kind of get swept along with the feelings about this, but there is so much to sort out after those feelings pass, or or, or when you revisit those feelings. So I'm I'm looking forward to this discussion. We've all mentioned it a little bit here, and I certainly talked about my keynote, but there's this idea I think of Jane Campion as being this very you know, instinctual and impulsive director. And um, I was cu just curious to whether you had the reaction that I did of where your rational response and your irrational response or your actual response were different. Like you, you like you could think if your reaction to the story and your reaction to the, the actual telling of the story and the emotional and psychological sense of it are two completely different things because they, they were for me. I'm not sure where you get that. Like, I don't know if <laughs> you're drawing from interviews at the time or things she said about this film, but I mean, mm -hmm. to me, this movie feels incredibly calculated. You know, the symbolism of it, the 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 back and forth motions of it, all of the the intricate pieces of the story, Ada's development in particular, like her development in regards to Baines, her development in regards to her husband, like there are so many stages to this. Her development as regards to her daughter, the thought throughness of the metaphor of her muteness and the way she communicates with her daughter through sign, the way her daughter translates for her or doesn't as she sees fit. Like all of these things feel very thought through oh, to me. Okay, let me put it let me put it a different way then, because because uh, you're you're right. It's not. I don't want to make it seem like she's improvised this film. She hasn't. She she has thought through all of the things that you say that she's thought through. I think what I'm saying is that you can look at the text of this film. You can just say just read. Read a, read a novelization of the piano, for example, uh, and just look at the story, and, and particularly at the relationship between Ada and Baines, and have one reaction, and then see the way it actually plays out in the telling, and that be a different reaction. That's what I'm talking about. I had a discussion about this film with some college professors of mine who were, and remain, very smart people, but used to dealing with literary texts. And they hated the movie because they felt mm -hmm. like it's a movie about someone who gives up 
her, you know, who kind of sells sells her body, and the film destroys the fact that the piano, the symbol of her creative creativity, is is destroyed, is treated as a triumphant moment, and just as a coded text that way, they did not appreciate it at all. But I, I feel like like it's kind of what you're saying, Scott, where the visuals and the experience of it kind of not necessarily work at odds with the story, but there's a whole different like frequency that's happening because of those elements. Yeah, I don't know that I ever was able to sort of give myself over to this film. Like, I feel like I was in the process of continually analyzing it as I was watching it. And, you know, maybe that's not the best way to experience this film. But, you know, I was also preparing to talk about it for this (laughs) podcast. So, But I think maybe where I see what you're talking about come through, Scott, is in Holly Hunter's performance. Really, the the love, the passion, whatever you want to call it between Ada and Baines does really nothing for me. I guess I can see how it could win people over, but it just didn't for me. And what I found more compelling in their dynamic is the the power imbalance between them and how the film sort of shows Ada figuring out how to work within that power imbalance and, and exert herself within this misogynistic patriarchy that literally sort of trades her and her daughter as, as property between men. And it's interesting to me that Holly Hunter is just she's so petite and almost frail seeming in this film next to Harvey Keitel, who is just hulking this hulking, lumpy man. And it's like, sort of the threat of of rape and violence is always there just in their physical proximity to each other. Like, it's very clear that he could take what he wants from her very easily. And the fact, not only that he doesn't, but also that she is able to turn that situation to her advantage and find something for herself in it is what I found myself responding to on an emotional level more than their feelings for each other. Well, you know, you say that he would have no problem taking what he wants. Alistair tries it and he, he right. really can't get there. And he's like, he's less of a an outdoorsman, like he's less of a, yeah. a great bookie ape of a man. But you see her you know, without any sort of weapon, without resisting, like, with violence against him, just, like, clinging to the forest and, uh, like, crawling mm-hmm. away, just, like, with this expression on her face that's it never seems frightened. It seems put right. upon. It seems grim and, and sort of disgusted. And you get the impression that she would react to violence from him in the same sort of way. I mean, she reacts to his sexual blackmail with that same sort of... Uh, all right, we're doing this, I suppose, if we must. Like, it's all a sort of <laughs> an almost British sex is an unclean thing that one must tolerate. Look at the ceiling <laughs> and think of England. Like, she never, I, she she rarely in this movie, apart from the scene with the axe, seems actually frightened. She right. seems calculating and like exasperated with men. But I think that's so important to the the emotions of the movie. I think the difference between, as as you say, Scott, like reading a novelization or, or just reading the script and seeing it on film, so much of it is in Holly Hunter's reactions to the things that are going on. Like so much of it is in the way she never seems entirely out of control until the scene with the axe. Even with Alasdair assaulting her, she seems not enough in control of her body, certainly not as much as she wants to be, but much more in control of the situation than he wants her to be. And it stymies him over and over. He tries to take what he wants in one way or the other, and she stymies him. Mm -hmm. And as Genevieve 
Steve says, there's a lot of power imbalance there, but there's much less power imbalance than one would generally expect from this kind of story. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that just fundamentally really an interesting choice. Keitel, by the way, is five foot seven, which is a testament <laughs> to both to how good that performance is and how tiny Holly Hunter is. <laughs> She's also usually sitting at a piano, so that helps, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, the other thing I kind of think about, too, we can get to this. I mean, there's so much symbolism in this movie, but one of the sort of fundamental conflicts of this movie is between what is natural and what is unnatural. And it's ultimately about Ada's attraction to the wild a little bit. You know, the forest. I mean, like that shot that I was talking about in the keynote of, you know, I mean, the, there's so many shots in the film about, you know, looking into that, into the forest. And, uh, you know, this is a place where you're literally stuck in the mud everywhere you go. It's an absurd place to try to impose societal rules upon. I mean, the type of clothes that she has to wear, the type of, uh, you know, sort of button down life they're supposed to lead. It's just, it's not a setting that's at all suitable for that. And so Baines kind of represents more of an immersion into what is natural and what is wild and dangerous and ultimately right. I don't think she's ultimately repulsed by Alistair because he's too civilized, though. I I think what that ultimately comes down to is she is discovering throughout the entire movie, like the mechanics of choice. Somebody who didn't have a choice, probably didn't have a choice to become pregnant. Like her, her lover, like chose not to be with her. She didn't have a choice to marry him. I'm not implying that she didn't choose to have sex with him because she seems to have been very much in love, but she likely didn't choose to become a single mother. And then she doesn't choose to become a wife, mm-hmm. and she doesn't choose to be shipped off to the hinterlands, and she doesn't choose her relationship with Baines. She doesn't choose her relationship with Alistair. But to me, when she comes back to Baines, it's because for the first time she has the opportunity to make that as an actual choice for herself. And I, I feel like the relationship with Alistair becomes so much more important, like in a kind of a standard romance novel. The whole idea of her being like a a good girl who's forced against her will to do these naughty sexual things, but she finds that they inflame her and then in the end she can't help herself and she goes back to love her. Like (laughs) all of that is very standard erotica stuff. Mm -hmm. But we hugely complicated here by having her slowly exploring a possible sexuality with Alasdair and it's entirely based on her being in control. She Uh, wants You mean Baines? No, I mean Alistair. Okay, go ahead. She yeah. wants him to like lie on his stomach and not touch her while she slowly undresses him and caresses him. She pretty clearly at one point brings him to orgasm but still doesn't want him to touch her. She's just she's slowly discovering his body and deciding for herself whether it's something she wants and ultimately just she decides no, she wants this other man instead. And he is so baffled by it. Like, he does not know what to do with this woman from the start, and he especially doesn't know what to do with her in bed because he doesn't know how to translate a woman who's making her own choices. And it mm. comes across as she doesn't either. The one thing you can say for Baines uh, throughout this entire story is that he respects the choices she makes. He pushes her into things she doesn't want to do, but he respects the limits she sets. He respects the rules she lays down. And, like, he never seems to push her further than she's actually willing to go. Is it possible that Alistair has never been with a woman before? I, that I'd certainly yeah. could be possible. I, I think it's a real possibility, given, especially given the religious nature of the community uh, there as well. 
That's a really interesting question that had not occurred to me, and I think it could be plausible. It's kind of interesting that this is a story that takes place on an isolated island, because it's also an isolated story in a lot of ways, and that our knowledge of the characters' backstories are pretty limited. And in the case of Ada, mm-hmm. I think purposely skewed. You know, I, we get that story that Flora tells that is almost certainly not true in sort of the, the story that they've told between them. But um, there's certainly room to infer that the true story of where Flora came from is maybe a little less romantic. And same with Alistair and Baines, you know, like we meet Baines, he's fully, to use an outdated phrase, gone native, you know, like we don't, he's clearly had quite a life before this point, and we really get very little of it. And I think that that sort of isolation of the characters to this one point in time is what makes the dynamic the real story of this movie rather than the narrative, if that makes sense. We don't even get that much of their present. I mean, do you have any idea what Alistair does for a living? Like, is he farming that land? Is he speculating in it? He's a colonizer. <laughs> well, we we see him we see him putting up fences, which boy, you want to yeah. talk about symbolism like trading the Maris for their land and then immediately putting up fences to delineate which land is his land is is a pretty potent symbol. But there's no sign that he's working that land or like raising animals on it or really it, it's just unclear what he's doing in general. Maybe one presumes he's buying it up so he can sell it off, but he always seems to be like fairly busy coming and going. But we don't really know what he does. And we don't really have a sense for how Baines supports himself either or how he came to own the land that he trades off to Alistair. Like, there's a lot of sense of these people living complicated and busy lives that are mostly off screen. And the only things we really learn about them is how they relate to each other, like in this little triangle. To take it back to the sort of question of, of symbolism and, and how this is reflected on a symbolic level, like um, I want to touch on the bell hooks criticism of this film is are any of you familiar with that okay it it sounds from the reading i did it sounds like it was definitely in the conversation around the time this film was out i couldn't find the actual essay on the internet but i found places that have quoted it extensively and it sounds like it's a strong criticism of the film as a anti-feminist film and it posits it as a colonialist fantasy celebrating, you know, the domestication of this Maori land and the domestication of a free spirit in Ada. So I think that's, like I said, a pretty critical take, but I do think there is something in the connection between Alistair's relationship to this part of New Zealand that they're in and Alistair's relationship to Ada. Um, both are something that he is trying to make submit to some point or another. Yeah, you get into some slippery stuff, too, where he's closer to the Maori, who are more natural, who are more in touch with the land. You know, it gets into some pretty stereotypical and some very kind of very worn out use of indigenous people to symbolize what white people are going through. Uh, and I think that's that's a legit criticism of the film um, that you know doesn't doesn't spoil it, but it's something that's worth acknowledging. Yeah, I we, we should definitely talk about how the Maori are used here, because it's not as bad as it could be, you know, but they are pretty much figures of, of primitive fun. Like they spend a lot of time joking to Baines about his penis and what it what it gets up to and how much they would like it or how much he should be using it. They attack people who are putting on a 
play as if they've never seen a play, even though they're in the, in this environment where it apparently happens regularly. There's a sense of them being just like all sorts of, of negative stereotypes about natives, like they're hard workers when they're benefiting from it, but uh, they'd much rather like lie around in their clearly like borrowed European clothes and like entertain themselves like all of these and hump trees and <laughs> and hump tree. You have disgraced these trees. <laughs> That seemed to be was was that Flora initiating that though? It seemed like that was kind of her imitating what she'd seen her mother and Bane's yeah. doing, right? and so maybe she was teaching all of the kids this game. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. No, that, I think that's definitely what what happens because she'd been she'd been privy to that. So behavior. yeah, it's, this is not the the native tree humping game, but yeah, this is not definitely not the most like respectful or or thoughtful way of dealing with these characters. But again, then again, they're they at least they have characters and names. They they aren't complete raw caricatures they aren't just you know crude devices of of fun and mockery the way they would have been in many other movies like of this time and earlier but they're not absurd you know i think you look at somebody like alistair and the way he's trying to live in this place and it's absurd it's ridiculous right trying to impose you know um values and structures onto this land that's not hospitable to it. I think he kind of comes off as looking ridiculous. But, uh, I mean, to, again, not to not to minimize all these other criticisms of the treatment of the, the Mari, but I do think that, you know, she wants to establish in very big, bold terms, like, where are the sides here? What is, what is natural? What is unnatural? And there's a lot of things that are done visually to kind of make that happen. I think it's really interesting that the film doesn't take a hugely clear side on... The Maori's uh, ownership of their own land. Like we see Alistair like walking a boundary that uh, the Maori apparently put up, like delineating their ancestral, their sacred ancestral ground. And we see him trying to have a conversation with them through Baines where he's like trying to barter guns for this land that's precious to them. But he fundamentally doesn't understand it in a way that's very familiar from stories about Europeans coming to America and, and looking how the, at how the natives use the land. They, he even says like, they're not using it. They're not working it. So why won't they give it to me? Like, what's wrong with these people that they want their mm. sacred lands when I could be taking them? And then we don't actually see him using the land either. We, we don't have any idea what he's using it for so why he would feel this like sense of manifest destiny is is very unclear i think from a modern standpoint it's very easy to look at that particularly the scene where he's bargaining for the land and see a, a graspy greedy european trying to take something that he fundamentally has no right to uh, and trying to lowball the the people involved on it but i don't know if it would have played quite that way in 1993 it might have well just as seemed like I want this land for useful purposes and like you primitive screw heads like don't want me to for reasons that you can't even articulate. What's wrong with you? Yeah, I just, I, I'm not sure about that, Tasha. It feels like he's just kind of being treated as, as ridiculous and, and the idea that you can own land being treated as absurd. I didn't really see it any other way. So Holly Hunter and Anna Paquin both won Oscars for their performances. And there was a brief time, as I mentioned, when Harvey Keitel was a sex symbol. Because of this movie, I remember this. I remember a New Yorker cartoon where some husband is trying to uh, imitate Harvey Keitel and not pulling it off. Very funny, <laughs> as all New Yorker cartoons are. Um, and, the, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, of course, there's Sam Neill, who's also uh, you know an excellent 
performer. Uh, so what, what do you think of the, the acting in this movie? I mean, I think it's all pretty I, good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I, was, I was blown away by how good Paquin mm-hmm. is and how smart a characterization that is of a kid who just has not developed any sort of moral mm-hmm. compass at all. Um, and uh, is sort of, uh, you know, I mean, just the, her interactions with the dog alone where she was <laughs> taunting it and pushing out in the rain and then comforting it and ask who who did this to you? You know, it's such a it's such a. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm that way with my dog sometimes too. But, um, but it is such a kid way to interact with a with a dog, and and just the way her allegiances shift from her mother, who you know has you know the center of her life, and and uh, to her her, uh, uh, her adopted father, who she just qu- kind of quickly takes to when it's convenient or when it occurs to her to to be on with him instead. It's it's it seems very true to a particular stage of childhood. I think also Neil's performance is maybe not discussed enough. I mean, obviously, there's two incredible performances in Hunter and Paquin and Kaitel as well, I guess. But I think maybe we, we don't talk enough about like what Neil does with what is like a really hard character that could have been a very like two-dimensional brute. And he kind of gives him this this vulnerability and and like there's points in the movie where you almost feel a little sorry for for Alistair because he's very sort of befuddled or like he doesn't understand Ada and and what's happening you know and he doesn't understand the world that he is is in that he has brought her to he doesn't understand the Maori and that gives him this sort of uh, I don't want to say sympathy, but like I said, I, I think vulnerability is, is probably the the best way to put it. And I think that character needs some vulnerability for it to be anything other than just a a monster. I think until he turns to violence, mm-hmm. it's hard to call him a bad guy. Yeah. He's just kind of a person of his time, and he's not a reflective person. He's certainly not a politically or or socially enlightened person, but he's just doing what someone of his of his background and means and uh, worldview would do. Uh, and I think that's a lot of that. I saw this in the script, but I think a lot of that is just, as you say, Neil playing it with a, a lot of vulnerability. Um, and he's just sort of a open hearted looking guy yeah. that you, you kind of want to, your, your sympathies kind of go to him up to a point. It's, it's funny to think about like, again, this is the same year that he was in Jurassic Park. And that's, and that's mm. another character that's like kind of a dick, you know, but also mm-hmm. kind of makes you love him. To a little bit. He's a modern version of of the nice guy archetype. You know, <laughs> his whole thing is, I don't understand why you don't love me and didn't choose me. Like I haven't forced you. I haven't beaten you. Like, and now you've got to go and make me mad. I mean, the the fact that when he physically attacks her, he outright says like, "Why do you have to make me hurt you?" Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's such mm-hmm. a cliche abuser line. This feeling of all of this is your fault. Like what I am doing is your fault. But at the same time, like the lead up to it is just is such this modern idea of I don't understand why I've been friend zoned. I'm just standing back here like being available and, and being not actively kind, but not cruel to her. Why doesn't she see that I'm here and I'm much better than him? And then when she chooses the other guy, like, of course, he turns into a rage monster, as mm-hmm. so many TM nice guys do. 
So, I mean, it just, it seems like a very interestingly modern interpretation. But the fact that he doesn't burst in on them when he catches them in flagrante mm. is uh, like a, just a fascinating movie moment because yeah. we know the structure of this story. The structure of the story is that he he bursts in and, and makes a huge deal and they're embarrassed and cut out. No, instead he climbs under the house and peers up at them through the floorboards. Like he's so helpless and hapless. Mm-hmm. And maybe turned on by it. And oh, like absolutely. I said, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he doesn't even know what he's looking at. I mean, this is quite possible in 1850. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's it's possible that on some level he's thinking like, is this what women and men do alone together? Like, is this this mm. is a, clearly what I'm missing out on? But I'm not quite sure how to take this emotionally. It's interesting. It's interesting in a way that Flora sees a very similar thing and immediately goes to model it and emulate it in the way that she can. And Alistair, who is theoretically like more mature and knows more about it, sees it and just completely shuts down and has no idea what to do except (laughs) lie under the floorboards and stare at them. Yeah, I mean, if, if he's a monster... Then I also think that we can't really buy into Flora's, you know, favoring of him or interest in him. I mean, there is some, there is a, a thing where he is providing a nice, stable home uh, for her, and her, and and more than that, attention. I mean, she's she's acting. I mean, that that's Keith. I think talked about this well, but like, uh, she's reacting as a child reacts. I mean, when you when you are, you know, she doesn't want to be shut out. So she, in, because she's shut out of whatever is going on. With her mother and Baines, she resents she resents them both for that, you know, because she gets this home and this attention from Alistair. You know, it, it all makes it makes sense when she makes the decision that she ultimately makes, and it's just so heartbreaking when she learns that it's the wrong decision in the most horrifying way. You know, I mean, she still loves her mother, and certainly does not want the, her uh, stepfather to. Um, uh, mutilate her as he does um and uh i think uh, paquin I mean, for a young actress handles it so or any actress handles it so so well and it is it is not surprising at all that she was able to make that very rare transition into being a, a, a in movies to this day um and it's also kind of funny of course that that she's gone from being the the accompaniment to uh someone who is mute to someone who is uh, has very few lines in the film the irishman um <laughs> she, she learned it she learned it the natural way she came by it honestly she, she in the in the sweet scenes between her and holly hunter like when they're alone in their tent or in bed telling stories to each other and communicating in a like a mixture of, of sign and speech she reminds me so much of the little girl in tarsum's movie the fall and like those scenes that the relationship between that little girl and lee pace's character was achieved via like improv and like a slow process of of making friends uh which happened with hidden cameras so she wasn't aware of what was going on Mm -hmm. i wonder if any of the process here was like similarly like like an intimate process of relationship building because it just seems so unforced and uncalculated and startling for uh, American child actors at that time. Was she American? She was, I believe, I think it's kind it's complicated. I think she actually grew up mostly in Los Angeles, okay. but was born in, I want to say England, but I could be wrong. Could actually could have been New Zealand. I'll look it up while we talk about. That is years. a point because if uh, we hadn't really we talked a little about this, I She's guess when New I Zealand, saw the movie. Canadian. 
Yeah. Uh, and but but also I did a lot of growing up in LA, I believe. But I mean that mm. accent is is none of none of the above. Yeah, the accent <laughs> is a, surprising. A, I mean, I know expert, but it strikes me as a very good Scottish accent. Let's talk about the ending of, of this movie. Oh, the denouement, I think, was kind of a sticking point for you, Genevieve, right? Yeah. Well, it just it feels like it was tacked on. I, I didn't do research to see if it was something that Campion was uh, compelled to add or whether it was her original vision. But it doesn't. It feels like the movie is maybe supposed to end when Ada goes into the sea after her piano. So Campion's original vision was for her to die. Okay. To the degree that was changed by her own artistic impulse versus making a film for Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it feels like something that could be. It almost feels like we're back in a kind of a Little Women situation, too, because it ends not with the happy ending, uh, but it ends with the scene of her under the water. Mm-hmm. Wait, was this an act? But in terms of Miramax, wasn't this an acquisition? This Or was this actually made for Miramax? It may very well be. Uh, I mean, I don't... Uh, that would make sense to me because it does not feel like... It doesn't, it doesn't feel like the kind of uh, tact on ending that, was hap- that would happen through Miramax at the time, but I also know that she did say, apparently years later, said that she the original intention was for her to drink. Yeah, and I, mm. I, I don't think... I, I don't want to argue that it should have ended that way because I think that Ada is as written a, a survivor, you know, and she is a strong character as we have discussed in, in various ways. And to have her sort of just throw in the towel <laughs> at the end, you know, for, for arguably good reason. I mean, I, I think we could argue all day long, whether the, the situation she is in at the end of the movie is, fundamentally an improvement but it's still she's still alive you know and she's still playing the piano and it's not the same piano and i think and this is another thing i kind of wanted to bring up because i i definitely saw some criticism of her you know having them toss her her piano overboard as sort of her throwing away her artistic passion her craft you know or trading it in for this for this new life with Baines but but we do see her with a, with a new piano you know she's she's teaching piano now at, at the end so i guess i want to get your guys read on the on that argument that Ada is you know trading in something fundamental about herself for this this new life with Baines I think it's bullpucky. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't imagine enjoying a version of this movie where she dies. I feel like that would that would take me just in the direction of like all of the uh, stories involving gay and lesbian characters where they, they have to die at the end. It just it would yeah. feel like such a kill your gays moment. It would feel like such a well, why can't we have nice things? Like this is a story about a woman trying to claim her own passion in a very repressive situation. And if the ultimate message was, well, there's no release but the cold, icy arms of the <laughs> sea, like screw that message. I know. Yeah. I I love the idea of her sort of coming out of it as a rebirth, but especially if her death was staged the way it's staged in the, the film as we see it, where she says, throw the piano over the side, and then she goes with it entirely as an accident then it would just seem like like this grim dark ending for no particular reason for i mean what's the symbolism there like the symbolism is that she can't reject any part of her or any part of her experience because she's just going to go down with it like that's a terrible depressing message so you think that it was an accident her that her foot got caught up yes absolutely i read that as her seeing that she could have moved her foot and chose not yeah, to me too yeah me Goodness. too um so here's my Here's my overall take. Uh, I like the ending. I think it makes, again, emotional sense. Um, The piano, I think, is a symbol 
at that point of the film, it, it has gone from this essential tool of self-expression and the thing she cares about the most to an anchor, a literal anchor that is <laughs> holding her back and dragging her into the water. And she liberates herself from this anchor and can be reborn and, and move on to this life with Baines. And the thing I think that's also essential about Baines, again, something that I, you feel <laughs> maybe not that and have, might have trouble rationalizing is that they both have a hold on each other. They're, they're entranced with one another and, and that relationship develops in complexity and emotion as it goes on. And as this uh, relationship achieves a certain equilibrium and, uh, you know, and I think it starts with the very beginning of that arrangement of when Harvey Keitel is supposed to have lessons and he says no that he just wants to listen and I mean I think there's something yeah. about that line that's super important to kind of understanding like oh, okay so he is bewitched by her it's more than just kind of like leveraging sexual favors out of her I think there's something much more comprehensive about that bewitchment and then there's this push and pull that happens throughout the course of the film based again of course on a huge power imbalance but I think that imbalance is sort of redressed as the film goes on. And then the, the in that context, the denouement is, is justified and kind of nice. I like it. I also think that throwing the piano overboard is, for her, a way of throwing the origins of this relationship overboard. Like, I, I think mm. she's voluntarily choosing mm. to get rid of her past and their past together and, like, choose this new relationship where they're, they're more like equals. This new relationship that doesn't come out of this like sordid sexual blackmail. I, I think it's all about her deciding that the symbolism of the piano is wrong now. And it's just, as you say, it's an anchor. It's a weight holding her down. I don't think she's giving up her art. If you lose the epilogue, you also lose my favorite line reading in the film, which is like, which just about how they're, she's viewed the town freak. And it's like, which satisfies. <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring that up when, in, when Scott was uh, talking about uh, what, what was so in a, such an important line for him, like, the smallness of of her voice and even of the phrasing in that line is so perfect but it really does speak to her having found a place where she's comfortable and satisfied like with with herself with her surroundings with how other people relate to her with her choices like she isn't a mutilated freak she's somebody that other people see as a mutilated freak and she finds it delightful like that's just a really great character detail yeah for sure um so there's plenty of things to talk about in this movie more things but we'll do so uh next week uh when we talk about portrait of a lady on fire but for now uh it's time for feedback this episode is brought to you by paramount plus get in loser mean girls is now streaming on paramount plus join katie heron as she meets the plastics and tina fey's new twist on the modern classic Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We've gotten so much good feedback for the last couple of episodes, so I'm plucking one each for Little Women and Gallipoli. Genevieve, want to get started with an email and a tweet about Amy's art in Little Women? Sure. Uh, Rupert from Denver writes, I was fascinated to hear Genevieve discuss Amy's self-regard as a painter and the effect that might have had on her decision to marry Laurie. If I'm correct, Genevieve's thought was that Amy's confidence was boosted when she compared her own plein air landscape to another being painted close by. 
This in turn encouraged her to pursue Lori as a husband, despite his hand-me-down status and obnoxious behavior towards her. My interpretation, and I base this on a single viewing, I admit, is the opposite, that she was discouraged by seeing her neighbor's composition, which was far superior to her own technically excellent but static work. Contrasted with his modern impressionistic approach, her own work, she realized, lacked any interpretive quality and was, in fact, dated and obsolete. With that realization, her marriage to Lori, even with its economic bondage, became a much easier decision to make. And then I also got, this is Genevieve again, and then I also got this tweet from at A. Peeves, who wrote, I just needed to very quickly say here that regarding Amy as a painter, it says in the script that she missed her time to be a naturalistic painter because it was the dawn of Impressionism. Bad timing. Okay, I would like to take this moment to apologize to my uh, art history professors in college, (laughs) because I completely glossed over the whole Impressionism thing. And uh, I think that both of these letters are right on. But Rupert's uh, interpretation of that I thought Amy's confidence was being boosted isn't quite what I was, was reading out of that scene. I was more reading that she saw a certain uh, fruitlessness to what she was doing because she saw someone next to her doing what at the time I interpreted as an inferior version of what she was doing. And it, she, she was thinking of it as like sort of busy work for women, you know, like like just something to, to keep her occupied until she got married. And that was sort of the, the realization of that for her. But now that I was like, oh, yeah, this is like the height of impressionism, uh, like it, it just totally changes that scene for me. And I don't think it it takes anything away from uh, what's interesting about her relationship with Lori, but it, it definitely, you know, gives it a casts a, a slightly different light on it. Bad timing is also the name of a Harvey Keitel movie. <laughs> hey, Genevieve, let me ask you an art, art history question. <laughs> uh, um, with, with regard to impressionism, well, um, well, I'm clearly very. I have very little recollection, so I, I don't know. know if you want to ask. Well, me. well, it's a basic thing, which is which is like. If I'm not mistaken, impressionism was uh, didn't go over that great at first, right? I mean, like, was this kind of rec- recognition on Amy's part that this was something that was coming, that she could see as an artist that she would be outdated at a certain point, that she was working in a form that it was going to pass? Um, maybe you know, I don't, I don't have a firm enough grasp of the of the timeline to say for sure, but I, I, I would guess that the fact that she is in Paris maybe makes it a, a little less of a, a unusual uh, thing, you know, and is maybe maybe that shot is also sort of expressing something about her inherent sort of Americanness in in this context. So it wasn't that it was rejected, it was that it was controversial mm-hmm. and divisive. So mm-hmm. and I try to think when was the first when was the, I'm looking at when the first impressionistic exhibition was it looks I think like it's eight, around this time. 1874. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, but I think I think actually it's, the movie kind of started before that, though. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah. So, so so it could it could be sort of a a coming wave. Whether Amy realizes that is a, another question. Maybe she maybe she did look at that uh, look at her neighbors and think it was trash. <laughs> you know, just because a, a lot of people apparently were doing that with impressionist artwork at the time. All of this really just speaks to one of my big hobby horses in uh, cinematic or any other form of visual storytelling, which is you cannot show people art and expect them all to have the same response to it and just assume that it you know it goes unspoken that people will take one look at this art and recognize that it's great art or terrible art you did not have your character make something and then just assume that you know what the audience is going to think about it because they're all going to bring their different beliefs to it and their different feelings about it just the same way they do about like the movie itself or any other form of art and for me this <laughs> there's just no greater example of this than rent where you have these characters 
characters that spend the <laughs> entire musical slaving over, uh, in one person's case, a film, and in another person's case, a song. And you get to see the film and hear the song at the end. And to my mind, they're both terrible. And they both kind of just speak to, oh, you guys have been wasting your time this whole time. Like, you're not only like bratty, entitled, like selfish little artists, you're really bad artists too. And you don't deserve to make your living this way. You you do need to sell out and go get jobs. So having this like unspoken moment of like, I look at what I'm doing and I look at what somebody else is doing and m- intending for it to be a big character beat, I think is kind of problematic. I mean, Amy does sort of say later, like she's only ever going to be a middling painter and like, it's just not worth her slaving away uh, in order to, to not be good at something and she's ready to hang it up. But I don't know that we get that out clearly out of that moment of look at what I'm doing, look at what you're doing. And it definitely sounds like it's meant to be a lot clearer in the script. Like it's meant to to spell out this moment of great transition in art, which I don't think the audience for the most part is going to get. Far be it for me to tell Florence Pugh how to act, but if you just kind of like smacked her forehead <laughs> and rolled her eyes like that, that would have been so perfect. Yeah. Maybe a little dough. Tasha's thing, I, I, Tasha's thing I call Mr. Holland's opus rule. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because it's like, this, here's a guy who one. sacrificed his promising career as a composer, and then uh, you hear the end composition. It's like, oh, boy. <laughs> so, some, something <laughs> tells me we may have opportunity to talk about this more with Portrait of a Lady on Fire next yeah, week. Well, um, <laughs> regardless, I would love to hear from listeners of like your favorite moment of, of hearing the song or seeing the art or what have you in cinema and thinking, well, that's some trash. That's true. Studio oh. 60 on the Sunset Strip was the TV uh, pinnacle of that. Well, no, you're, making oh, me, yeah. you're making me nervous about our <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire discussion. So let's move on to the next question. Um, on the Gallipoli front, we got a couple of really encouraging emails from Australians confirming that we totally didn't screw up the historical context of that film <laughs> in World War One's importance to Australian identity in general. Big sigh. Keith, <laughs> want to share one with us? Sure. David writes, I was born in 1975, and my first memory of going to a cinema at all was to see Gallipoli with my family. Perhaps a strange choice for a six-year-old, but I think that the fact of my thoroughly proper middle-class mother taking me, I've also met other Australians of my generation having done the same, shows to the cultural impact both of Weir's film and the idea of the battle at large for Australians. There is no cultural figure in Australia more resonant or representative of our heritage than the young soldier of World War I. It has been so inculcated into the nation's consciousness that it is a quite cliched and almost hackneyed image. Any young schoolchild was told of heroic and tragic tales. Simpson's Donkey, for example, a story from the battlefields of Gallipoli. These are universally known and are integral to the nation's story. Australian identity and history cannot be separated from World War I, and Gallipoli in particular. In fact, the day of the first landing in Gallipoli is commemorated as a national holiday, Anzac Day. Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. It is our Memorial Day and Veterans Day rolled into one. Beyond the remembrance, it also marks when Australia as a nation began to self-identify and claim itself as more than a far-flung colony of the crown. There you have it. Um, I don't know what I have to add to that letter. I just like to hear it. Yeah. No, that's great context. and I'm glad we we didn't screw it up. (laughs) Thank God. But we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. 
In our next episode, we'll comb the beach for another forbidden coupling with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, start handing out piano keys to the special person in your life. You probably barely know how to play the entertainer anyway. I love the piano, I love the piano, I love to hear somebody play. Upon the piano, the grand piano, it simply carries me away. I know a fine way to treat a stein way. I love to run my fingers or the keys to ivories and with the pedal.